Last week as I was uh, in the foyer greeting guests and everyone was going out of the service, <clears throat> Robert, our security guard, a uh, great guy, hope you get a chance uh, to meet Robert. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Robert's not a part of our congregation. We found ourselves in this weird day and age in which we live in need of someone who's constantly watching and protecting and, and walking about, and so we have a security guard here on Sunday mornings, and we have someone here every day of the week for uh, Pebbles, our a school that we run here, Pebbles Preschool and Kindergarten, and uh, uh, his company is uh, the company that we contracted with, and uh, uh, Robert's been the primary person who's been here. So I was leaving last week, uh, Robert, our security guy, not a part of the church family, said to me, have you been listening to sermons? And uh, I just want you to know that my intent is to go to the Discover Cornerstone class uh, in the near future. I want to be a part of this church family. And uh, he said, I've see- since I've been working here, this is my job, Uh, And I'm just watching these people and being around this Cornerstone family. I've seen something very, very different here than I've seen anywhere else. I've seen something very genuine and something very real. And with a lot of transparency, he he said to me, um, you know, there's some things in my life I need to get right. Uh, I need to make some decisions and I need to make some changes in my life. And pastor, I want you to know that I'm trying to set those things in motion right now. And as I make those decisions, I, I hope to very soon be a part of this, this church family. When Robert and I had that conversation last Sunday, uh, and I knew where I was going with the sermon this morning, I just couldn't get Robert out of my mind. Because I wondered after talking to him, how often followers of Christ just walk right past people. I don't mean, not, not with intentional exclusion. I'm not saying that Christians walk into a room and say, Oh, not you. Oh, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not saying it like that. I'm just saying that we are in our own zone, doing our own thing, and with unawareness of the people around us, um, let me say it this way, we're concerned with our own concerns. Uh, we're, we're caught up in our own interests. We're interested in the things we're interested in and our focus is on those interests and we're not focused on the people uh, around us and we forget, even as followers of Christ who are as devoted as you are, we forget that the mission of Christ is all about engaging people. People are the reason God sent His Son into the world. Because God so loved the world, the people, that He sent His Son on a mission from God to represent God on planet Earth. Uh, We often have, uh, uh, I assume Sean is probably in the room, I saw Tammy up here singing a minute ago. There's Sean over there by yourself. And uh, her husband's in the booth, so don't worry, she's not alone. Uh, uh, Shauna and I and Tammy and Kirsten, the, the Pebbles leadership, we often have conversations like this where we huddle together and say, hey, let's just all remind ourselves that while providing a quality education is the, you know, the main goal of our school, the parents are also the mission. 
We have hundreds of parents walk through that door tomorrow morning, starting about 7 o'clock, all the way up to about 9 or 10, just a steady stream of wonderful people coming in to entrust their children to us in this large school. Uh, And we often talk like this, Shauna, let's not forget our teachers. Most of our teachers are not members of this congregation. They're professional teachers we hire. They're also our mission. Wherever there are people touching our lives, those people are our mission. Uh, and I just, this, this lesson is going to be a good reminder for us all because we all have a default mode, and our default mode is to mind our own business. That's your default mode. And so <clears throat> you could live the whole rest of this week on that default mode, <clears throat> excuse me, where you go into Target minding your own business. And where you go to Chick-fil-A minding your own business. And where you go to school minding your own business. And you go to work minding your own business. And you could live this whole week with never never engaging another person outside of what's required of you to take care of your business this week. Or you could go out those doors today on mission for Jesus Christ with your eyes open and with great self-awareness to the people around you and realize that every person your life could contact with this week could be the very opportunity that God has designed. You could change someone's life for the kingdom of God. The mission of Christ, let let me be very clear, for you to call yourself a follower of Jesus, the mission of Jesus is... Making disciples for Jesus Christ. And we're going to feel the tension before this story is over about calling ourselves followers of Christ and calling ourselves Christians, calling ourselves disciples, but not really being on the mission. With that in mind, let's get right to the story. You remember last week we were in Jerusalem? Jesus has turned over the money changers and made a whip and driven out the sacrifices, had a big conflict. Jesus says, I'm in charge. And they say, no, you're not. We're in charge. And uh, we don't find your argument uh, compelling, and you're discredited. And then that night, they send Nicodemus down to shame Jesus some more. And then Jesus really handles incredibly uh, smartly that conversation with Nicodemus. And uh, he has the teacher of Israel on his heels and tells the teacher of Israel, you're, you're not, you, you don't have the title teacher of Israel. I have the title teacher of Israel. Are, are you calling yourself the teacher of Israel and you don't know what be born again means? Seriously? You, you don't know the most elementary thing that God is doing in your own generation? And so it's a conflict and then it's conflict. And so now the text tells us that Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem and they're heading back north towards Galilee And Jesus is going to have a stopover in Samaria. This is where we are. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. By John, we mean John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who technically did the mechanics of the baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea, that's south, that's where Jerusalem is. And he went back once more to Galilee, that's north, where he is raised and where his ministry is based. Verse 4, 
Now, he had to go through Samaria. Incredible statement right there. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria because the other roads were closed. He didn't have to go through Samaria because the app told him that was the fastest route with the less traffic. He had to go to Samaria. This is a cosmological mission statement. He's saying, I'm God in a human body sent to planet Earth, and I've got to go to Samaria. You say, why? Because the cosmological mission of the Father needs me to go to Samaria. Not because of traffic, not because of convenience. I have to go for a different reason. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well is there, right outside the city of Sychar. And Jesus, who is fully human, it's hard for us to grasp, as tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well and it was about noon. Now let me see if I can unpack what you're about to read in this woman at the well, as you know it, story. If the Pharisees were troubled at John the Baptist's unauthorized religious activities, then the Pharisees are absolutely apoplectic at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not only shaking things up in the temple by saying, I'm here and I'm in charge and by the way, I'm God. And then that night, uh, telling Nicodemus, when you see the Son of Man lifted up like the serpent in the story of Moses in Numbers 21, uh, you'll know that I am the Son of God, that I'm the one the Bible has spoken of. Jesus is shaking things up wherever he goes, cleansing the temple, claiming to be in charge, surviving the challenge with Nicodemus. And now Jesus, the text tells us, is making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. If John the Baptist called a little ripple, Jesus caused a a tsunami of unauthorized religious activity. Now what you're to remember is that from John 1 all the way now in chapter 4, this is one running story. The chapters were not there in the original writing. So John is telling you one running story and you're expected to weave elements of these stories together and see how the plot is building. To see from chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all things were made by Him. This Creator has become human and is now here claiming to be in charge. You're supposed to see the tension building all the way from John chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, John told you that the overview of the ministry of Jesus was this. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not, but as many as received Him. There were a few. To them gave He the power to become the sons and daughters of God, which were not of human birth, not of Abrahamic DNA, but born from above. And then he has the conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Again, an adjective with two meanings in the word play. So now, in this running story, Jesus has presented himself to his own. His own have rejected him and shamed him. And he took it. That was last week's sermon. I hope you've heard it. If not, please go listen. Jesus was shamed. 
He lost so you could win. So now he gathers the disciples and they go up to Samaria. Now, with the mention of the word Samaria, John, the Apostle John, who's writing this, with the mention of the word Samaria, the reader is on alert for escalating plot tension. Samaria always means, it always means tension. It always means conflict. Because when you say Jew and Samaritan, you have two groups that for hundreds of years have been locked in a conflict with no resolution. It cannot be resolved. They agree to disagree, and they will never resolve their conflict. Yet, ironically, the further Jesus moves north, away from Jerusalem in the south, the further Jesus goes this way in his ministry, the less conflict he has. This is the most curious thing in the world. Here is the temple of God, quote-unquote, in Jerusalem, the center of worship of Jehovah God on earth, they think, and yet the further Jesus gets away from that, the more he's received. The further he gets away from Jerusalem, the the less the conflict, the more open-minded the people, the more that hearts are open, the, the encounters less combative, the hearers more receptive. Now, a lot of what I say to you is being broadcast around the world right now. And so I say some things to you that I really mean for others. So right now, I'll be very specific. Uh, Ezekiel and Shilning and Uncool and Team Asia, I want you to hear what the Scripture is saying. If you're facing combative encounters among your own people, and all you do is fight with your own people, then try moving away to another group of people and see if they're more receptive to the gospel. It's just a test. I'm not saying it's a rule. But Jesus talks a lot about not being received in his own country. He talks a lot about a prophet has honor, but not in his hometown. Jesus talks a lot about the further I get from Jerusalem, the more people are receiving the Messiah and saying yes to the will of God for their life. And so for those listening in Asia, I know you've been fighting some ongoing battles for decades with the religious leaders in your area and they want to control everything and they, will not, they, they see your activity as unauthorized religious activity that they have not approved. And since they have not approved of it, therefore God has not approved of it. And we say hogwash to that. Leave those people in the dust, shake the dust off of your feet, and go across the country to the Punjabis uh, and the Kashmirs, and go to, go to the mainland, go to other people, and see if they'll not be receptive to the message of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees want to control all religious activities. That's the bottom line. Uh, I see an uprising again among the Baptist tradition right now trying to really ratchet down control of unauthorized activity. It's going to backfire and blow up in your face. You cannot contain God and the Holy Spirit in a box and say He must work according to the dictates of a denomination. God will do what God's going to do, and it's your job to get on board with Him. It's not His job to be confined to your box. And the Pharisees want to control all the religious activity. And any unapproved religious activities will be opposed by them. They will do their best to shut it down. 
And so now the story, the tension in the story is this. The Pharisees are completely focused on stopping Jesus and his disciples. Within four chapters, John has got you there. And so you will know that from this moment, for the rest of this entire sermon series, the Pharisees will be trying to shut Jesus down, and eventually they will just say, we can't shut this guy up, there's only one solution. A Roman cross and death. It's the only way we can get rid of this guy. He's such a troublemaker, we've just got to kill him. And it's better that one man should die then the whole country should, should perish. This will be the thinking of the denominational leaders before the story is over. In the plan of God, what began at Jerusalem in the temple has now boiled out and a, a similar scene, or maybe a dissimilar scene, is about to play out in the Samaritan countryside. Let me remind you that the Samaritans first show up in our Old Testament story. Uh, you remember when the, the Jews were released from Babylonian exile? Uh, actually, the Medes and the Persians took over. But when they were released from exile, uh, and the characters were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, leading the three waves of migration back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city and reestablish the worship of God. In the migration back, we were first introduced to the Samaritans. When the Jews from Babylonian captivity arrived in the promised land at Jerusalem, they were met by other Jewish people who never went into the captivity. They were people who escaped, they were not captured, and they had been there now for a whole generation or more, maybe 70, 100 years. They had been in the land and they had intermarried with Gentiles. They are Jews who intermarried with the Gentile uh, invaders whether they were Assyrian or Syrian or Babylonian, when those countries invaded, they remained in the land. They never went away. And they had families and they had children and they are half Jew, half Gentile blended families now. That group of people is called in your Bible the Samaritans. Now what you need to know about the Samaritans is when the Jews came out of the captivity to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, the end of your Old Testament, these Samaritans, these half-Jews that lived in the land already, came out to welcome their kinfolk home. And when their kinfolk said, we've got an edict from the king to rebuild the temple, the half-Jews, the Samaritans, said to the purebred Jews, we want to help you. What can we do to help? Uh, there's a lot of rubble here. You need to raise some. There's a lot that needs to be. How can we help? We've been here all this time waiting for this to happen. How can we help you? And basically, the Jews gave them the finger. The purebred Jews looked at the half-breed Samaritans, and if you'll go back and listen to the sermon series, they said, we don't want your help. We consider you trash. We consider you unclean. Your bloodline is not pure. You are not purebred DNA from Abraham. We know that there's idolatry in this part of the country. You may even be involved in that idolatry. And we don't want your hands, your filthy hands, to touch one stone of our holy Jerusalem. Well, that's not very nice, is it? But there begins the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. They try several times through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to help the Jews. But after continual rejection... 
uh, the, finally they become enemies. And you'll find uh, Sanballat and Tobiah fighting with Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a Samaritan Jew conflict. This conflict at this writing of John 4, when the John's telling the story of the woman at the well now, this conflict's been running for hundreds of years. It has not been resolved, and it's not going to get resolved. When they encounter each other in society, they just move the other way, and they agree to disagree. We're never going to resolve this. That, that's basically where they are. You live in your spot. We live in our spot. We don't go to your neighborhood. You don't come to our neighborhood. We all get along just fine. We just agree to disagree. Now, John fixes your eyes on a field outside of a Samaritan city. And in that field, outside the city walls, there is a well standing in the field. It's outside the city. The people come out to draw and get their water and take it back into the city. And John has fixed your eyes on that well and it becomes the backdrop for one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. Several biblical scenes from the Old Testament play out at a well. The New Testament authors presuppose you've read the Old Testament and they presuppose that you're going to catch the significance just like this. In case you haven't read those stories, let me tell you, especially in the book of Genesis, a well standing in a field becomes the backdrop for two or three powerful scenes to play out. Most of them are someone going to get a bride and man encountering woman at well. Several of them in the book of Genesis. That could be a whole other sermon for another time. The author presupposes, you catch the significance, Jesus and his disciples are coming to the well. John has painted the picture of the well for us. And we see a fully human, fully exhausted, tired, thirsty. The text says it's noon o'clock. You guys in Texas know what that feels like. This is a Middle East setting, same climate as yours. The sun is beating down on the Son of God, fully human. He's tired, he's thirsty, it's noon, Jesus sits down on the well. A request for hospitality, scene two. We're told in just a moment that Jesus is alone. He's alone, the text will tell us, because the disciples, when Jesus sat down, they said, we're starving, we're going into the city to find some food. Their physical hunger is driving their mission for physical food. And John has set the story in a social context of the Mediterranean Middle East, and in this context, hospitality is always expected and demanded. In other words, if you're a traveler and you come upon someone, it's expected that someone will show you hospitality. Uh, if you were a stranger coming uh, through the wilderness and you found somebody there with a tent, it's expected that they will feed you. Okay? That is the law of the land across all social barriers that hospitality will be shown to tired and hungry and thirsty and weary travelers. You're expected to know that as you approach the story. The story is going to have some tension about what it means to be a host and show hospitality. Will the woman be a good host? 
Will she show hospitality? And then there's this expectation that Jesus is the weary traveler, that someone will show him hospitality. And the tension that's about to rise is, do people understand the identity of the traveler? Really? And will the woman be a good hostess? Really? And then there will be some irony in just a second, because the tables will be flipped, and the one who's should be getting hospitality in just a second is going to become the host and the woman who should be serving is going to be receiving from the Jesus. It's all irony that John has built into the story. So we're told Jesus is alone. The disciples have gone in search for food. The tension builds around the identity of the guests now. John 4, 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Well, it's just simple enough, isn't it? You say, I don't know what it means to engage people. That's pretty simple right there. Will you give me a drink? Parenthetical statement, verse 8. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Strike one, strike two. How can you ask me for a drink? parenthetical statement John wants you to understand in case you're not from this part of the world what's happening for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans I've already told you why now Jesus request is surprising on several levels for now focus on the fact that Jesus has initiated the conversation I don't want you to go further than that Jesus initiated the conversation and I just want to presuppose that if he had not initiated the conversation, he would have been in our mind-your-own-business mode. And he would have sat there, and she would have been in the mind-your-own-business mode. And she would have come and got water and went to town, and Jesus would have sat there until the disciples came back, and they would have went their ways. And that's the way most of us live our lives, but not Jesus. Can I have a drink of water? I'm shocked that you're asking me for a drink of water. Jews don't deal with Samaritans, and plus that, I'm a woman, strike number two, and we don't mix men and women in this kind of culture, especially Jew and Samaritan. His request is surprising on several levels. I've told you many times about when I traveled to Asia, the different drinking cups. I don't want to have to get into all that story again, but when I go into the home of a high caste Hindu, we drink out of different cups. I bring in with me a Manipuri low caste pastor. He has to use a different set of cups. We don't... We don't put our mouths on the same set of cups, high caste and low caste and different races. It's very strict about this. She's like, I'm really shocked. You want me to draw from my bucket and hand you a cup of water? You're going to drink? You're going to put your lips on the cup of a Samaritan woman? Uh, if you've been to Asia, you know they've got a very peculiar way of drinking out of water bottles. And if you haven't been, let me just clue you in. When you go to Asia, you can give a brand new bottle of water to somebody and it's so programmed into their system about uh, drinking uh, lips touching and sharing vessels that if I gave you a brand new bottle of water they'll crack the lid and they'll hold the bottle up this high and they'll let it fall down from the sky into their mouth you ever seen that? they will not put their lips on the bottle you give a bottle of water to an American they're just like, stick it right in their mouth like a baby and you know uh, suck it out anyway it's a very different culture and she's shocked on many levels why are you talking to me? Seriously, Samaritan Jew, man, what, seriously, you're going to drink from, from a vessel that I would, I would pull water up and you're going to drink out of that uh, vessel. 
I want to be a very gentle pastor right here because Jesus has initiated the conversation. And I want to be very gentle with you at the beginning of this message for fear of losing you for the rest of the message. It is the one who has the mission from God who initiates the counter. It is the one who has the mission from God who is expected to initiate the encounter. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It is the person who is on mission from God. The one who is the follower of God is the one who's expected to initiate the encounter. And I want you to feel the tension of that gently, but I want you to feel it this morning. Because perhaps your greatest apprehension at being a follower of Jesus is that you just refuse to initiate conversation with people. It is perhaps in this room of Christians the greatest barrier to you living out the mission that Jesus has called for you. You just dig in your heels and you refuse to encounter and engage and initiate with people. Feel the tension of that. If I said to you, are you a follower of Jesus? Your answer? Do you do the mission of Jesus? Don't answer. Don't answer. You feel the tension of that. We are all claiming to be followers of Jesus here this morning. It's why we're in church today, to to worship Him and to worship God and to hear what He has to say to us. And yet, have we walked into church this morning to hear a message from God knowing that we have no intention of doing it when we walk out those doors? That's why there's whole books in the Bible, like Brother James writes us a book and says, don't just be hearers of the Word, but be doers. You have to, you have to do. Uh, th- this is really what it means to be a Christian. And, and I want to be gentle here. I want to beat up on you, because I know you're wonderful people who are followers of Christ, and, and you're, 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 you're passionate about pursuing Christ. It is the one who's been given the mission who must initiate the encounter with people. Jesus now sits on the well and He initiates the encounter by asking simply for some human kindness. Just simple human kindness. You see the sweat? I've sweated through this robe. I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm weary. It's written all over me. Could you please give me a drink of water? Show me some hospitality, please, ma'am. And yet the irony of the story is that the one we see as the guest in the story is about to be the host in the story. For he is the one who actually has something to give to the woman that she can find nowhere else. Scene 3, water or living water. Verse number 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God, that's eternal life by the way, Through Jesus Christ. He is the expression of that eternal life. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and that well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Let me unpack it. Jesus is saying to her, you're shocked because a male Jew is talking to a female Samaritan? (laughs) Jesus says, if you really knew who I was, you'd be even more shocked. Because the God who created the universe is now sitting on your well having a conversation with you. Not just a Jewish man full of bias and social, you know, uh, boundaries. It's not that a man who's a Jew is talking to you, that is true. But God is talking to you. And if you really knew who was talking to you, madam, your mind would be completely blown if you really understood who I am. She sees only a thirsty and helpless stranger. And yet he is the very expression of the love of God to humanity. He's asked for hospitality in the form of a drink of water, but he's ready at a moment's notice now to switch the roles and be the host himself and give to her the water of eternal life, salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But the woman doesn't understand any of that, and let's cut her some slack. Neither would you and I. If you and I had wandered out of Samaria to draw a bucket of water and had this exchange with Jesus, would we have any more clarity than she? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so she's a bit confused at this point. She does not understand. She says, so when he says, I'll give you water, she's like, you'll have no bucket. (laughs) I mean, that's the most common sense thing ever, isn't it? Really, you're going to give me water? You have no bucket. See this? She's got a bucket. She's able to give him something. He's offering to give her something. He doesn't even have a bucket. How can you offer me water? Didn't you just five minutes ago ask me for water? Insert sassy eye roll right here. I mean, that's what's happening now, very playfully. Her rhetorical challenge is softening, though, because I notice now she starts calling him sir. Now that she realizes he's going to have a conversation with her, which social norms would normally forbid, when she sees he's going to break all the rules and be kind to her, she starts respecting him a little, starts calling him sir. Maybe she sensed something about him, some kindness, some willingness to bend the social rules, and she's taken note that he stepped out of those boundaries. And so she starts calling him. So she finds some common ground, I noticed in the conversation, by invoking their father Jacob. Now remember, the Samaritans are half-Jews. So what she does is she says, yeah, we don't really get along. But listen, if we go back there far enough to the patriarchs, we do have common ground. Jacob's both of our father. You know, the patriarchs, we both claim them as our fathers. And so we could go back far enough in our family tree and, yeah, you're Jew, I'm Gentile, I'm Samaritan. Yeah, our father Jacob gave us this well. Yeah, this was a Jewish well once upon a time. Pure blood Jew. Now it's a Samaritan well. And here we all are at this, at this spot. I, I want to say this to you in the most kind way, if you're not a believer. If you would just soften your heart to Jesus, if you could just approach Him with some respect and make the smallest of moves in His direction then God will come running and close the distance and throw His arms around you and embrace you with tears of joy. If you'll just make... You may be thinking, listen, I'm far away from God. You're not. If you'll just make a small gesture. 
If you'll just make a move in God's direction, I promise you God will close the distance. Remember the prodigal story? Prodigal says, I'm going home. It's the father that got off the porch and ran the 440 and, and zoom to meet the son and threw his arms around him and with tears welcomed him. It's exactly what God would do to you this morning. If you'll just try to find some common ground and say, yes, Jesus is Lord God. I want to make my way back to you. I want to start making decisions that will align my life with you. God will close the distance and he'll help you come close to him. She says to him, our father Jacob gave us this well, are you greater than Jacob? He's a patriarch. These are the guys in the Bible, man. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are the guys in the Bible. Are you greater than Jacob? She assumes that they would both agree a no answer to that question. She assumes this is common ground. We could both agree that you're not greater than Jacob, one of the great patriarchs in the Bible. She assumes they have common ground on that question because only one person could claim to be greater than the patriarchs. And that's the one who gave living water from the rock to all of Israel. That's the one Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet is coming like unto me. Him you shall hear the coming of the Messiah. Surely there's only one person that claimed to be greater than the patriarchs, and that's the Messiah. So she said, oh, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's asking a question knowing against all odds he can't be greater than Jacob. Or could he be? Is it possible? Further, if Jacob found this water adequate for life, how is it that Jesus finds this water inadequate? I mean, if all the generations before said this water is good water, why is Jesus here now saying this water is not sufficient water? Well, let's read a little bit further. Jesus answered, verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. This water has no lasting satisfaction to your life. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I will give them, will become in them a spring. It's like God opens a fountain inside of us and out of our lives is flowing eternal life to others. Oh, this is what that mission is about. Sharing what we have should bubble up and it should go to people around us. I'll give you a well in you springing up to everlasting life, to eternal life. The woman said to him, I'm intrigued now, give me that water. Sold. Now she still thinks it's something like the fountain of youth at this point. That's what I think. Okay, it's my opinion. She still haven't got the whole forgiveness of sins, eternal life, this is the Son of God moment yet. I mean, it would be like if I had an infomercial and I said to you, or my TikTok pitch to you, Listen, this serum will get rid of all the bags under your eyes and the wrinkles on your head and the crow's feet and you'll lose 20 pounds and, and your liver will function perfectly and you'll, you'll, your hair will regrow and it will come in, you know, luxurious and, and, and your natural... Co- I mean, if I had the fountain of youth that would solve all your problems and give you a better life, you'd like, yeah, send me a bottle that. What is that, $39.99? I'll take two. Right? At this point, that's what the conversation kind of feels like from her perspective. He's like, no, I've got, I've got water. I've got water to give you. I asked you to be the hostess, but I'll be the host if you want me to. All you have to do is ask. And I'll give you something 
that will satisfy and transform your life and it will bring such a complete abiding peace and satisfaction that you can stop looking for answers. You can stop looking for what's missing in your life. You don't have to go in search of yourself. You don't have to try to find the meaning of life. You will have found it. You don't have to search your whole life for something that means something. When you find this water, Jesus Christ, eternal life. When you find this, you found the meaning of life. You found complete satisfaction as a human being created in the image of God. For I'll put God's Spirit in you and you'll be back to what you were in the beginning, a living image of Almighty God. I will restore to you the meaning, the very essence of what it means to be fully human and satisfied with what you are. She thinks he means like, I'm going to lose the love handles and the wrinkles and the, I think... That's kind of the way I'm reading it. She's like, this sounds like a great offer. Don't know about the eternal life stuff yet. Just, I want to lose the love handles and, and, and you know, and, and, and gray hair go away and all. Uh, you give me this water. Jacob and everyone who drank from this well for thousands of years, they could never be satisfied with just the water. This is Jesus' point. Just like you're never going to be satisfied chasing anything. And I could just draw a blank here and let us off. Wealth. Uh, uh, I hope you are wealthy, but the pursuit of wealth will not bring you happiness. Health. I hope you pursue health. I'll meet you at the gym this week and let's pursue it together. But the pursuit of health will not bring satisfaction. As a matter of fact, you take two days off and you'll feel like you're starting over again. Live it every week. You say, well, I'm pursuing culinary delights. You'll never be satisfied. There will always be a new barbecue place to try. And some of you are trying to hit them all. I know. And I'm with you. That's good. I mean, tell me what your pursuit of fame. There will never be enough fame to make you happy. Popularity at school. You can pursue popularity and get popularity but when you get it you'll feel like it's not enough and you'll have to do something to gain some more and you'll only be insecure about losing the popularity you have it's a, it's a thirsty thirsty proposition you say well I just want to give a promotion and promotion and promotion and be very successful it's a very thirsty very thirsty ride you're going on be promoted I pray for you to be promoted but it's not your life's mission I want to be very clear with what I'm saying this morning be healthy, be famous, be popular, be rich, be, 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 be. But if that's your life mission, you're going to be thirsty at the end of the day. It will not satisfy. It will not make you a fulfilled person. Alexander the Great at 33 had conquered the world, sat down in Babylon and wept because there was nothing left to conquer. Can I put this in biblical terms? At 33, he had done everything there is to do on planet Earth and he sat down thirsty. And he couldn't figure a way to quench his thirst. There was nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do but drink yourself into oblivion, inject your veins full of something, and jump off a building. You know how I know that? Because I watch stars and famous people do it all the time. Why are they killing themselves? Because they get to where they thought they wanted to be, and they're 
thirstier now than they ever were before and all their life has no meaning at all. He says to the woman, I'll play host for a while. Why don't you ask me for a drink of water? I'll give you something that will transcend this water and I will transform your life and put you on a new mission with forgiveness of sins. I'll make a whole new you, all right? But it'll be a, a you created in Christ Jesus. She says, sir, okay, I'm going to play along. Give me that water. Now, very quickly, my time's going to run out, so I need to tell you this. When, when she says, give me that water, uh, uh, and Jesus says, I'm offering you water, he keeps quoting the Old Testament. Now, John presupposes you've read the Old Testament, and you're going to make all the connections just like this. Because we have not read the Old Testament, let me clue you in to what Jesus is talking about. Isaiah 12, 2. Surely God is my salvation and I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord Himself, is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus has this in mind when He's talking to the woman. She wants water. I want to give her salvation. He's thinking of these Old Testament passages like Isaiah 55 Verse 1, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, don't worry about it. You come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money. And without cost, we'd call that free. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Come and drink. It's talking about salvation. It's talking about satisfaction in God. Isaiah 55, verse 5, Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Why why are the nations coming running to the Jews? Because salvation is of the Jews. Jesus has come from the Jews. And it's a foreshadowing that the gospel, the further he gets from Jerusalem, the more he's going to be received by these Gentiles. Now, not fully understanding the magnitude of what Jesus is offering her. She's still intrigued. She's intrigued enough to know that she needs something. Listen, all of us know we need something, right? I mean, and so she knows I need something, and she wants this water, but it's all too ethereal. It's not like tangible. I can't really get a hold of what he's saying. It's too abstract. What's tangible is I've got a bucket in my hand, and there's a well in front of me. That's tangible. What's tangible is that my throat is dry and my life is empty, but I can't quite grasp what this man is talking about. So Jesus makes it personal. Although she does not know Jesus, Jesus knows her. See yourself in the story right here. Although she does not understand Jesus, Jesus understands her. Put yourself right here. So Jesus says to her, verse number 16, Go, And call your husband and come back and let's have a family discussion about this. Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. You've spoken the truth for sure. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you have right now is not your husband. What you've said is very true. When the conversation gets personal, she intends to shut it down now. Wouldn't you? 
I'm with you up to this point. You're going to change my life and give me something that will satisfy and transform me. Yes, yes, and yes. Now he gets into her private life. And I think she's ready to flip the switch and say, we've crossed the line now. It's gotten personal. I'm going to shut this conversation down. And what Jesus wants her to know is that it is personal. And what I want you to know this morning is it is personal. And Jesus wants to make it personal. And he demonstrates to her that he knows her personally. And I want to speak for Jesus this morning. I think I have the authority to do that. He knows you personally as well. And he does want to make it personal. Now, I think this has been preached by all my tradition. And I'm going to be very clear on that right here. I don't think I've ever heard it preached correctly. I think it's always been preached incorrectly. And I'm going to clarify right now. Jesus' goal is not to shame her. Jesus has not made this intentional encounter just so he can look at a woman in sin and say, you slut, you're the sorriest person I've ever met. And if you think that's the role of Christianity, you have a complete false view of what Christianity and following Jesus is all about. You've not called to be the chief condemner of everybody and to look down your nose at the whole world now that you're born again and your sins are forgiven. And quite the opposite is true. You're to kneel at the feet of people who are sinners and wash their feet and try to bring them to Jesus. And when Jesus makes it personal, he doesn't make it personal to say to her, you're the sorriest person I've ever encountered. That's not what's happening. His goal is to help her understand what he is offering her. He's trying to show her incredible compassion right now. What no other man would show her. Jesus is showing a love and compassion for her And she's afraid to open up about her real situation. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Let's let's redirect this conversation. I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, well, you kind of have a real history here. Let's talk about that. Let's make it personal for just a moment. But I have compassion for you. I feel for the woman because I'm like you. All of us are reluctant to open up about our past. And let me just say this to every Christian. All of you have a past. Why do you pretend like you don't? Stop it. Don't give off that air that you have no past. None of us want to talk much about the past and go back and relive bad behavior that's in our past. But somehow Jesus has to get through to her and so he makes it personal but he does it in a very compassionate way. And he gently exposes the sinful condition that she's been living in because that's the very condition that is, that's the reason, that's what he's here to resolve. This water he's offering her is going to fix this. So he needs to bring it up because your life, this personal life that you're living, this is what I came to fix. Again, Zechariah, on that day a fountain will be opened in the house of David. (laughs) Water. Coming to cleanse. Jesus has built on these metaphors for this woman who knows these verses. And he's saying to her, listen, I I know your situation. It is personal. And when Jesus brings up her past and her present, he's articulating what she's feeling. Here's what the woman is feeling. I'm trapped in a life that has not played out as I thought it would play out. 
I think every adult sitting in this room right now could say, life has not gone the way I thought it would go. I had a script in my mind at 16, 17, 18, 19 of what life would look like. And trust me, none of our lives look like that. I'm not saying our lives are all bad. I'm just saying you can't script it. We do, but it doesn't go that way. The script writes itself as we live and we make decisions. And now the script has gotten out of control. She finds herself trapped, a victim of sin and abuse. She's stuck in a loop and there's no way out of it socially. Now I want to ask you a question. I'm going to give you a fact and I want to ask you a question. Here's the fact. In the first century, these women were not allowed to file for divorce. Only the men could file for divorce. Even later, they're going to come to Jesus. The Jews will and say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Because that was the practice. I mean, you don't really need a reason, Steve. She's got a gray hair. She bought a cat. She burnt the dinner. It doesn't matter. I'm bored. You could just get rid of your wife for any reason and go get a different model. And that was the practice of first century, these wonderful godly people called the Jews and the Samaritans. They were just trading in their wives for no reason. If a woman could not file for divorce in this culture, then how in the world did this woman have five husbands previously? Anybody come up with an answer to that? Clearly she didn't file for divorce. Clearly the men did. Oh, that puts things in a new light, doesn't it? This woman's been married five times and all five times her husband done wrong by her husband. Five times she's given her heart and love to a man and five times that man has said, I'm done with you. I'm moving on. You put on a little weight here and a little sun here and I don't like your attitude there. And you're not that great of a cook and I'm moving on. Anywhere. Five times she's given her heart to someone only to have it crushed. You say, well, why didn't she... She has no power in this culture. She has no rights. She's merely property. Now do you understand the conversation they're having? Jesus isn't saying, I see you as a, as a soiled and, and loose person. Jesus is saying, I know you've been done horribly wrong. I'm so sorry that you've been treated this way. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with now You've given your heart to five men who have stomped on your heart and the guy you're with right now doesn't even have enough respect for you to marry you. He won't even commit to you. Life has not gone the way you planned it, has it, Miss Samaritan woman? And I want you to know my heart's heavy. I feel what you're feeling. You're trapped in a social system, you're trapped in a scenario that you can't get out. There's no way out. You have no recourse. I want you to know that the Son of God, the living water, has come to solve this specific kind of problem. Now, that's where we're at in the story. I'm checking my time. It's not looking good. Stay with me. Is he a Jew or is he a prophet? The woman now is looking through a different set of lenses at this thirsty traveler. Now she sees he's not just a Jew having a conversation with a Gentile. 
Now she says, this guy's talking messianic overtones. He's talking like a prophet would talk about spiritual things. And the Jews forbid their rabbis, their teachers, to talk theology with women. It's part of the, the uh, oral, oral law, the, the, the verbal Torah. You don't talk theology with women. They, they, they don't have those kind of brains that can comprehend. That's their thinking, okay? They pray every day, I thank God I'm not a Gentile and I'm not a woman, that I'm a Jewish man and I'm enlightened to be able to, to talk about spiritual things. Jesus has now initiated a spiritual conversation with a Gentile woman. Breaks every boundary. The woman is thrilled because finally she's been wanting to talk about some spiritual things maybe for a long time and nobody would ever talk to her about them because they didn't think she was up to the, up to the conversation. She's got a lot of questions and she's about to start asking some of those questions right now. And her first question she wants to ask Jesus about is, what about worship? I've got some questions about worship. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. And I want, I'm glad to figure this out now because I want to talk some things. I've got lots of questions. What happened to the dinosaurs? I want to talk about the flood. And the cre- but she wants to talk about creation, uh, worship. And she said, I want to talk about worship. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. And the Jews worship in Jerusalem on that mountain. Do you remember now Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah? The, the Samaritans said, can we help you build the temple in Jerusalem? The Jews said, get out of here, you're scum. And so they went back to Samaria. And on Mount Gerizim in Samaria... The Samaritans built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And for hundreds of years, the Samaritans have not been welcome in Jerusalem to worship God. Instead, the Samaritans go to Mount Gerizim where they had a temple on the mountain and they went and worshipped God there. Two rival temples. Mount Gerizim in Samaria, the temple in Jerusalem. So the woman says, I've wondered this my whole life. The Jews say only true worship happens there. This worship doesn't count. The Samaritans, my people, say only true worship happens here. That worship doesn't count. And she said, I've got so many questions about worship. Are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? What place is the place of real worship? Oh, I'm so glad she asked. Because now John has arranged this story connected to the previous story because Jesus has just come from the temple in Jerusalem. Now are y'all getting the connection? Now this story is about to shift and she wants to talk about where to worship. She's about to start talking temple. Well, temple was our whole previous sermon. Jesus went up to the temple and said, this is not the temple, this is the temple. And if you destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it again. God does not live in your building. God is right here living in human manifestation right now. And I am here and I am in charge. This is temple for the rest of the Bible now. Okay? It will no longer be building. It will be in human form. You are declared by Paul in the book of Corinthians to be living temples of the Holy Spirit of God. When we assemble together as a church, Paul has declared in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians that you all, speak in southern English, you all, when you come together, God's Spirit comes down in a room like this full of believers and this becomes a holy temple to God. When you leave here in a few minutes, He will not remain behind in this building. He goes with us. Does that make sense? God doesn't live here all week. We don't bring Him food and water and and keep the temperature right so He's comfortable so that next Sunday when you get here, God's here and happy. God lives in you. He's going home with you in just a few minutes. 
But when we come together, it's very special for all of these living temples to comprise this holy temple. So the woman says, I'm so confused about all of this. She said, my people say this and your people say that. Where is the real place of worship? Now what's funny is she's neither at Mount Gerizim, nor is she at the temple in Jerusalem. She's standing at a well in Sychar at neither center of worship, and she is standing before the true temple of God. Matter of fact, it gets more interesting, the temple of God, she didn't come to the temple of God, the temple of God had to go through Samaria. God has come down to encounter her. And He's initiated the meeting with her. Insert your name right here. Could God come to Fort Worth this week? To have an encounter in your life? Is God maybe working with one of your co-workers or one of your teachers or one of your classmates or one of your neighbors and God's working in their life and this week He's going to come down in a special way and try to connect the two parties together? Could that happen this week? Not only could it happen, I believe it will happen in your life this week if your eyes are open to it. She's at neither temple and yet she's about to encounter true worship. Jesus replies, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither at this mountain nor at the Jerusalem mountain. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You guys are a little ignorant about your theologies, a little messed up. We Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from from, underline it, the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, it's a very interesting passage on, on worship. Before Jesus defines true worship for her, He tells her that she's not the only one who's confused about worship. I just came from Jerusalem and I was confronted by people there who know what they worship, God, but they don't know who He is. Does that make sense? They know they worship God, but they just don't know that I am that God that they're supposed to be worshiping. He says salvation is from the Jews. Now, from, you English majors know, is a preposition. From is a preposition indicating movement from one place to another place. From indicates that it's going. If salvation is from the Jews, then it indicates in the Scripture that salvation is going to start at the Jews and it's going to go out to another place and another people. Hear me carefully. Salvation is not in the Jews. That's what the book of Galatians blows up for you. Salvation is not in the Jews. Salvation is not by the Jews. Uh, Salvation is from the Jews. And if salvation is from the Jews, then it must be moving somewhere to another group of people. Do you find that to be true in the New Testament, the book of Acts? That it goes from Jerusalem and out to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth? Jesus now is a little ahead of that curve, and he's there in Samaria, and he's like, salvation is from the Jews. And it's moving right here into Samaria, Samaria, because I just came to my own, and my own received not. 
So I'm here to see if anybody would receive me, and if you will, I'll give you eternal life and make you sons and daughters of God. And this woman is about to be the first, as I can figure it, non-Jew convert to Christianity. She's about to be the first person. We ne- you never probably have heard a sermon about her in this respect. The first Gentile to receive Jesus Christ as her Savior. This woman. So having talked about worship, having talked about the source of salvation... In God's eyes, we learn now that true worshipers are neither Jew nor Samaritan. Let me say it to you a different way. True worshipers are neither American, nor Mexican, nor Romanian, nor Indian, nor Korean, nor... In God's eyes, true worshipers constitute a whole new group of people whose other identities have all become irrelevant in Jesus Christ. So that whether you're black or white, whether your eyes are tied at the corners or very round, regardless of the shape of your nose or your ears or the color of your hair, God now considers everyone who believes in Jesus to be one whole new people. Brothers and sisters, one family in Jesus Christ, and our other distinctions become irrelevant to us now. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate who will help you. And Jesus now calls the Holy Spirit, next verse, verse number 17, the Spirit of truth. When Jesus says true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth, that's not two different things. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about true worship. It's talking about when you get born again and God's Spirit comes within you. You have the Spirit of truth and you can now worship God in spirit and in truth only once you recognize who Jesus Christ is. Sometimes people have asked me, what's real worship? Real worship is having a correct understanding of who Jesus is. It's belief in a Trinitarian God that's expressed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And without a correct theology, without a correct belief in God, in Jesus, there's no such thing as true worship. You can go through the motions of worship, but it means absolutely nothing to God as he witnessed up in Jerusalem just a few days ago. He said, you're actually reviling me and mocking me with your worship. Their cultures were all hung up on where to worship, which is the right place to worship. And Jesus said, it's not about a place, it's about a person. In your modern times, you just went through the worship wars of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, where the church was fighting over how it should worship. Can you use a drum? Can you use a guitar? Can you, can you, can you, can, the mode of worship. And basically, whenever we get hung up in those, uh, those kind of conversations, they're, they're just nonsense is what they are. What Jesus says is, when you want to know about worship, worship depends on understanding who I am. Well, now the woman's mind is really moved. Now she's thinking, okay, Jew, prophet, now her mind's about to make one more leap. I want you to see it. Or is he the Messiah? Verse 25, the woman said, I know that when Messiah, who's called Christ, means the same thing, anointed one, Messiah, king. I know that when Messiah, called Christ, is coming, when when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, John has built this into the story so you'll feel the irony. Here is a woman who's a Samaritan who's unsaved. 
having a conversation with God, explaining what she expects from the Messiah. Do you feel the irony of this? She's talking about her, when Messiah comes, listen, Messiah, when Messiah comes, here's what we expect from him. She's going to lecture Jesus on what she expects from the Messiah when he shows up. Now watch what Jesus, how he responds. When Messiah comes, he's going to work all of this out. God's going to send a fixer. He's going to fix this world. It's in a complete mess, and I hope he does it soon. Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. Ding, ding, ding. Now, it gets more interesting because in the Greek, there is no he. It's only added for you English speakers. So let me just back up a minute and tell you what Jesus actually said to her. She said when God sends his king, he's going to fix all of this and explain it to us. And then Jesus responds, the one who is talking to you is the I am. When God does, I am. When Messiah, I am. When Christ, I am. Whenever the I am is invoked in Scripture, you have heard the words of God to Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, to whom shall I say has sent me when they ask? And God says to a flat on his face, Moses with no sandals on, you tell them that I am has sent you. Who are you? I am that I am. I am and there is no explanation for me. I am and I am before all things. And I am the bread of life and I am the word and I am the light and I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the narrow path to God. I am what you've been looking for. You said when God comes, He'll fix it all. I am talking to you, madam, right now. Well, I've got to hurry ahead. Let me tell you what happens in the story. I mean, it's so much irony, I just can't explain it to you. But let me tell you what happens in the story. The clueless disciples are about to show up now. Have you been missing them now for 55 minutes? Where have they been? Well, they've been at Taco Bell, of course. That's where they've been. They've been at Whataburger. All the while, Jesus has been trying to save the world from its condition. The clueless disciples now enter the scene. And I want you to see them coming with arms full of Whataburger bags and Taco Bell bags. they got a drink in one hand and bags and mustard dripping down the front of their tunic. got a, you know, a double cheese jalapeno Whataburger over here in one hand. And they're just coming eating and drinking and, and dripping. And, and they walk up on this scene with Jesus. Now, I can bring it to a conclusion pretty quick. Bear with me. Verse 27 just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Now John was there. He's one of them with a Whataburger. And so now after reflection and years have passed, he's written this and he wants you to know what really happened. And John says this, we were surprised when we stumbled upon the scene. We had so many questions, but we were scared to ask because our mouths were full of cheeseburgers and we didn't understand what we were seeing. And when we walked up, we wanted to ask the woman, what do you want? 
we wanted to ask the woman, what do you want? And we wanted to ask Jesus, why aren't you talking to her? Why aren't you talking to her? And those two unspoken questions reveal everything we need to know about the modern church and the disciples. This is our attitude right here. Pastor, why are we trying to help these Indians? Pastor, why are we going to Nicaragua? Pastor, why do we care for the refugees? Pastor, why do you want us to reach our neighbors? This is the broken ideology of the disciples. Now, they're going to get it fixed here in a little bit. So let's not be too harsh on them. And I know we're going to get it fixed too here. So it won't be too harsh on us. Let me proceed. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then the people begin to pour out of the city towards Jesus. Now, let me see if I can wrap up these final scenes. John wants you to focus on this giant empty water pot sitting in the dust beside the well. The woman has left her water pot and run into the city. The disciples are coming with tacos and burritos. And John says, and there sits the woman's empty water pot. She has abandoned her pursuit for water. It is sitting alone, abandoned, and over here there are burger wrappers and taco wrappers and sriracha sauce and buffalo sauce. John wants you to see what's happening right here. This woman has found Jesus and now her old life is sitting right there and she don't care about that pursuit. There's a bigger pursuit that's driving her life now. She's on mission. She's found the Messiah and she's on mission and the mission is get as many people to the Messiah as you can get. These people have been called to be disciples and they're kind of on their own mission. Doing what we do every day. Going to work, filling our bellies, doing what we do. You see, I'm not saying it's, it's what we do. But for many, it's become the driving impetus of life. We're doing what we do. We're not doing what she's doing. She's on mission. And these guys are not on mission. They went into town to satisfy their own hunger. Did they forget that Jesus was passing through a city filled with unsaved people who needed to know that the Messiah was sitting right outside the gate at a well? Did they not bother to tell anybody at Whataburger that Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is sitting right out there about a hundred yards away who can transform their life? They totally forgot what the big mission was because they were so focused on just meeting the everyday material needs of their life. And so they say to Jesus, Jesus, eat some food. Eat some food, Jesus. And he's like, no, I'm good. Something big is about to happen here in the next few minutes, and I don't want mustard on my chin. There's something big about to happen for the kingdom of God that trumps me eating. He hadn't eaten all day. They're satisfied. 
The noon meal has already happened in the city. Those people have eaten, but they find themselves not satisfied with the food they've eaten. They want more from life than that. So there's a whole mob of people coming out of the city, being led by the woman now who's met Jesus. And Jesus says to the disciples, My food, verse 34, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Don't you have a saying? It's four months till harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look up for the fields are white unto harvest. Don't say, Lord, someday we're going to get on a mission. Lord, someday we're going to make disciples for you. Lord, someday we're going to engage with what it really means to be a Christian and forget just the, the facade of attendance at church and whispering a prayer now and then. God, one day we're really going to engage with what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus said, now is the time. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white now. And when He says, lift up your eyes... For the harvest is ready. Here comes all the people from the city. It's happening all simultaneously now. The white fields are the lost people coming out now, being led by the woman to Jesus Christ. Let me read one more passage. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed on him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for two days in Samaria. I'd love to have all those conversations, wouldn't you? We don't even have those recorded. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, for we have now heard for ourselves and we know. What do they know, ladies and gentlemen? That this man really is the Savior of the world. Let, let that word right there echo in your heart this morning. Is he the Savior of the Jews? Well, yes, but not just of the Jews. Is he the Savior of the Americans? Yes, but not exclusively. The Samaritans come out and say about a Jewish man, we've heard, we've seen, and now we know that God has sent His King to save us all. You see how John has tied this together? Chapter 1. As many as believed on Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons and daughters of God. John chapter 3. For whosoever, for God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. He was not sent in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. John chapter 4, this is the Savior of the world. Ladies and gentlemen from every race, and you Americans who are a mixture of every race, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And no one has exclusive claim on that. Thank God it's come to all of us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's have just a moment of prayer before we go home. Thank you for your patience this morning and hearing me out. It's quite a lengthy story to tell. There are several things I want you to consider as we prepare to end our service. Many of you are looking for a church home. I want you to know that Cornerstone has a global mission. We're trying to think far beyond the boundaries of Fort Worth and Keller, although Fort Worth and Keller are very dear to us and near to us. For those of you looking for a church family where you're part of something much more global in view, I want you to know that when you become a part of this church family, you've connected yourself to a global mission. 
next Sunday afternoon uh, during this service, next Sunday, sorry, before noon during this service, uh, Discover Cornerstone. It's the pathway to membership, pathway to be a part of this church family. There will be people in the foyer this morning, Chris and Kristen, the welcome desk. Susan and I will be out there. All you have to do is say, Pastor, we're ready for that next step. We'd like to have that discussion. That could happen as quick as next Sunday. But first, you'll have to decide that that's what you want. To engage with such a church family. Some of you are looking for life change. And I just want to remind you, it's not found in miracle elixirs and magic potions. The only thing that will satisfy your life and transform it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you receive Him as your Savior, He'll send His Holy Spirit flooding into your soul and He'll connect you to a church family where someone can become a disciple maker to you and lead you on a journey of transformation and you'll begin to live in that moment the best life you've ever lived. That's what God is offering you. Yes, a great life, but forgiveness of sins, eternal life, satisfaction in this physical life, something to live for, something worth living for, is found in Jesus Christ this morning. Most of you in this room have been born again. You've already received Christ as your Savior. And I want to ask you something very personal like Jesus did the woman. What about the mission Jesus has called you to? I know you love God. I know you're faithful. But what about the mission? At what point are we going to get really serious that Jesus has called us to a mission And we're going to pursue that mission. It's very problematic for us to call ourselves followers of Christ if we don't intend to follow Christ. It's very problematic, ladies and gentlemen. Some are already here at the altar praying. Listen, if you need to receive Christ as your Savior, there's people on the front row. Two of our deacons are right here and they can lead you to Christ and pray with you this morning. All you have to do is slip out of your seat and come sit next to one of them and in 30 seconds, 30 seconds, your life can be changed. Christians all over the room, maybe you need to bow the knee before God this morning and just say, God, I've been a little lackadaisical about this mission aspect of my Christian faith. God, if you'll help me in these next few months of this new year, I want to chart a different course for my life. I don't want to be the guy with hands full of cheeseburgers, but no eternal fruit. God, I want to show up in in your presence with something to really cheer about. A group of disciples that I have led. This may be a moment of recommitment for us. I'm going to ask you to stand quietly to your feet. If you want to come and join these praying, welcome. If you want to pray where you're at, welcome. If you need to come and have a conversation with us, just a few minutes now before we end the service, this is your moment right here. If you need to be received Christ, there's people right here who can help you.
last week, uh, Amanda uh, Tenen came at the end of the service and said, I need to take the next step. And for her, the next step is to follow in believer's baptism. Uh, I think we all have a next step. Those of you who have been saved 50 years, you still have a next step you need to be pursuing. But for her, baptism is hers. Uh, you may find yourself in a similar situation where you've received Christ, but you've never followed in believer's baptism. Uh, we'll schedule Amanda's baptism out some weeks now where we can have a baptism class and prepare for this maybe a month out or so in order to give you time to come and join her if you need to. So I want to challenge you. If you need to be baptized, all you have to do is communicate that to one of us. Anyone wearing a deacon tag this morning? Anyone? Matter of fact, anyone. Just say to somebody, I need to be baptized. Anybody know how to direct me? Somebody will help you get to the right spot this morning. I promise you. Listen, I love you very much. Thank you for your patience with that story. It's so powerful. I would challenge you this week. Go read John chapter 4 again and let that echo in your heart. God loves you. It is personal, but it's not personal in a bad way. It's personal in a very good way for us because God wants to give you the best life you could ever imagine living. Listen, it's going to be a great week. You ready to go uh, tackle it with some sunshine and some fresh opportunities this week?